You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I think there's a constant balance for the believer. Human nature doesn't change. We're the same. We read the narratives of the Old Testament and we see these struggles as well. We'll see it today in exactly what was sung about this morning that we have to come to the right spot, that we understand the God that we serve and who he truly is. And when we get that perspective, and that's right, our lives will be right. Everything will fall in place. But when our perspective of God is wrong, nothing in our life can be right. And it's amazing in all of our lives how sometimes we think we know who God is, and we have no idea. Or we think we know how he will respond or how he will act or how he will intervene, and we're often shocked and amazed. And so may we this morning, as we've heard the music, as we've sung together, think about the God who is, who he truly is, and allow him this morning to speak to our hearts and lives and and put him in his proper place so we have the right perspective as we face this world that we live in today. 1 Samuel chapter 5 is where we'll be at in just a moment. Let me refresh your memory on how we got to this place. You say, I know how you got to this place. You've been in the Old Testament for three years now. <coughs> and that's partially, that's partially true. I, I was talking to Dan a while back, and, I, and I've come to the realization that I will never get to preach everything I want to preach before I die. It's impossible. I, I can't possibly go through everything. The Bible is so deep and so rich and so powerful. And so we're stuck in the Old Testament, but I'm glad to be there this morning. Last week we talked about the children of Israel. They had been under the judgment of God. They had obviously sinned against him. The priesthood was corrupt. It was a joke. The sons of Eli were wicked men. And so they stand before their enemies and surprise of all surprises, they're defeated. And they're shocked by this. And they ask the question, why is it that God allowed this to happen? And and they were right in that assumption that it was part of God's plan. He did act, but in a way they did not expect. And before they were allowed to think about that and meditate and really search out the reason why, which they would have come to the conclusion it was their sin, they just said, i got an idea. Let's take the ark of God, the holiest piece of furniture, where we find the mercy seat, and let's take it into battle. And when we do, if we have God's furniture in this place, God will have to then deliver us and give us victory. And we talked last week how this ark had become to them a lucky charm, a rabbit's foot, a plastic Jesus on the dashboard that they could pray to, and and he would do whatever they wanted him to do. And when the army sees the ark of the covenant, they shout, Oh, they're excited. This is the presence, they think, of God. And and the Philistines are terrified. They want to go home, and they say, listen, don't go home. You better be men. Fight, because if you don't fight, you'll be slaves. And so they do fight. And the Philistines engage Israel. And when they engage Israel, Israel, with the ark of God in their midst, is defeated. I was thinking about that this week, because... I often, when I read, I try to to, to add in my own thoughts and mind the human element of the story because it is a human story. And again, I I just thought of their disappointment. That here they were so excited because the ark had come into the camp. 
And they already had it planned out how God was going to deliver the children of Israel. And then, not only did it not happen, the ark is taken, they're defeated, the sons of Eli are killed, and Eli himself, when he hears the news, falls back backwards and is killed. He breaks his neck and he dies. I would imagine that all of Israel at this point is, is disappointed. I mean, that's, that's probably an understatement. They're disappointed in their circumstances. They're disappointed in their situation. And ultimately, they're disappointed in God. Because we all know God could have delivered them. God could have stepped in. God could have showed himself strong. God could have used this time to be, have a great victory, but he doesn't do that. And they're disappointed in him. And my friend, there are times in our life, and I, I want to just reiterate this before we go into this story, because I, I was just talking to some of our people this morning. It's been one of these weeks where we face disappointment. And we will face disappointment. We will find ourselves in situations and circumstances that we do not like. We don't want to be there. We've been hurt, betrayed. Um, Things didn't work out the way I thought. And the truth is, for all of us, we are human, and there is a thought process within us, at least within me, that says, okay, here I am in this situation, here I am in this circumstance, and God, what are you doing? You, You could certainly intervene. You could make this thing better. You could make this all work out. There are times we find ourselves disappointed in him, and we said last week this great truth. He will allow us to be disappointed with him if it will awaken us to the reality of who he is. This is the God that we serve this morning. He's okay with who he is. He is the great I am. And he is willing for us to be disappointed in him if it wakes us up to see who he really is this morning. Let me remind you of something. The God that we serve this morning is more concerned with your holiness than your happiness. This God that we serve this morning is more concerned with your godly character than He is with your comfort. And, and we, I think we know that, but even when we know that, there's a part of us that thinks, wait a minute, this is somewhat cruel. Do you mean to tell me that God's more concerned about me being holy and a Christ-like character than He's concerned about my happiness and my comfort? And the answer to that is, yes. And I'm fearful today that, that many Christians, we are myopic in our, in our view of, of everything. Because that would seem cruel if, All we're living for is this. It would be cruel. What do you you mean? No happiness, no comfort? I mean, what's that about? Um, Because we live a life that's all about here and now and comfort and happiness and what we want. But can I tell you something? In the big scheme of things, that's the wrong vision. What did Paul say? He said, um, we, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that we see, everything we touch and handle and want and desire, the things that we see are temporal. They are temporary. They are passing. They will vanish away. But the things which are not seen are eternal. 
And so let me remind you this morning that as we approach this God that we serve and as we want to know Him better and as we face these disappointments, understand that God is fitting all of His children, every man and woman in this room who is a born-again believer, He is fitting us not just for here. He is fitting us for eternity. And in that fitting, what He is doing is He is molding and shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And instead of allowing our disappointments to make us real, they should drive us into a deep and real relationship with the God of heaven. And understand that he loves us so much that he is willing to allow us to be disappointed. Because there are things within all of us that must be knocked off, smoothed out, There are rough edges that he will not allow to stand. And so he allows disappointment in our life, even disappointment in him, if it wakes us up to the reality of who he really is. And so this is Israel. They believe their God was an utter failure here. But we're going to see in a few moments that's the furthest thing from the truth. And they will learn the lesson that this God, who he really is, is high and lifted up. He is holy. His word is true. He will keep his word. And we find it now in 1 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse number 1. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took The ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, it's important as we go through this to realize what's happening. If if you remember from our study in the Old Testament, we'll see this again in the story of Jonah. We even see it in the Roman conquest that during this time, gods were territorial. And so the Hebrew God in the land of the Hebrews was Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. But the God of the Philistines in that locale was Dagon. And there are different gods in different locations. And so those gods were responsible for that territory. And here is Dagon. We're introduced to this God of the Philistines. He is a God of weather, storms, and a God of military might. And so the Philistines now have conquered Israel, which to them means I've conquered, we've conquered their God. And so they take the ark, which represents God, they take it back to Ashdod, which is the center of worship. This is Dagon's backyard. This is where he is God. This is where he reigns supreme. And when they take the ark and put it in front of Dagon, what they're saying is this. Dagon, our God, is superior to Jehovah. Dagon has defeated Yahweh. Dagon is more powerful than anything Israel can throw at us. And so it's significant that they bring the ark before Dagon. Verse number 3. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. I have to tell you something um, with this story, and it, it gets better. 
But I was talking with Kim this week about this story. We were walking, taking our walk. I was laughing out loud when I was telling her again about this story because you have to picture this. Here is the Ark of the Covenant now, and it's, it's in front of Dagon, this statue. And remember, Dagon is an idol uh, that is made with the head of a man, the hands of a man, and the body of a fish. I guess you'd call him a merman. I'm not sure, but I think like a mermaid, but a merman. This is what he looks like. And so here he is on his altar, and the ark is there, and they say, Dagon has defeated Yahweh. And they come in early next morning, and when they come in, the ark is there, and Dagon is fallen on his face. He is laying in a position that is one of submission and reverence and worship. And it's so bad that Dagon cannot pick himself up. Right? Help me, I've fallen, I can't get up. This, this is where that came from. This is, this is where it started. It started in the temple of Dagon. They, they, they stole that idea because here is Dagon. Help me, I've fallen and I cannot get up. And so what they do is, the Philistines then take their idol, and you have to picture this now, and they take him, and the Bible says, and the writer does this on purpose, they put him back in his place. This is their God. This is who they worship. This is the one who delivered Yahweh, so they think, into their hands. So maybe it was coincidental. I'm sure those things happen. Verse number four. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the, the ark of the Lord. So they come in again, and when they come in again, this wasn't coincidental. They come in, and the, the idol again is on the ground, face first, worshiping Yahweh. It gets better. Not only is he worshiping Yahweh on the ground, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left. I think Dagon's getting his godness kicked right out of him. Now he's on the ground, and not only is he worshiping, this, this, this is a, a picture of a military execution. His head is lopped off, and his hands are lopped off, and he's bowing before Jehovah, Yahweh, God. Yahweh has totally desecrated Dagon, and he has done it in his own backyard. And that's the point. The point is, the Philistines believe that they have got a great victory because of their God, Dagon. And what God has said, wait a minute, I want you to know something. Your God will bow to me, your God's head and hands will be whacked off, and you will have to put him back in his place. And so they do. Verse number 6. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emrods, even Ashdod and all the coasts thereof. And this is strange. This is one of those verses like, what are you talking about? Because the word emrod, um, we're not used to that word. It's a strange word. It's a word that we're really not sure what it means. But there are scholars who believe it has the idea of a burning, a swelling. There are scholars who believe that means hemorrhoids. I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of hemorrhoids. I, I, it's, it's, it's painful, brother. It's painful. It's painful. And, and that may be the case because it talks about them being smitten in their secret parts. There are others who at least say 
what is happening here is these are at least some type of tumor, some type of swelling in the neck, the underarms, or the groin area. That's what's happening. As you read the, the context of what's going on here, you'll find later on that there's this infestation of mice in the land of the Philistines when they bring back the ark. And, and there, are, there are scholars who, when they read this, believe this is, these are symptoms of the bubonic plague. With, with these rodents carrying diseases and people being afflicted with them. So no matter what emrods are, they're a bad thing. Okay? And, and these people are not happy. This is a terrible plague that is happening now to the, the Philistines. Verse number 7. And when the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel shall not abide with us, for his hand is sore upon us and upon Dagon our God. This, this wonderful, great victory of Dagon has now turned into a disastrous nightmare. And, and in their worship center in Asa, they say, listen, this thing cannot stay here. The hand of the God of Israel is heavy upon us and our God. And so verses 8 to 10, what they do is they say, okay, we'll take it out of Ashdod, we'll send it to Gath. And then Gath gets and says, we don't want that thing, let's send it to Ekron. And so as they send this along throughout the land of the Philistines, the plague intensifies. It gets worse and worse as they go along here. Verse number 11. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to its own place, that it slay us not. And our people, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men that died not were smitten with the emeralds, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You see how this is playing out? Here Israel thought God had disappointed them. Here the Philistines thought that they had defeated God. None of it was true. God was alive and well and showing himself strong to his children and to those who did not know him. Let's look at chapter 6 now. And I'll, I'll read through this in just comments. So let's look at verse number 1. And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying... What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to its place. And they said, If ye send away the ark of the God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering, then ye shall be healed. And it shall be known to you why this hand is not removed from you. Why his hand is not removed from you. Uh, then said they, What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, five golden emrods and five golden mice. This is the idea of the infestation there. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore ye shall make images of your emrods and images of your mice that mar the land, and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Peradventure he will lighten his hand from off you and from off your gods and from off your land. Wherefore? Then do ye harden your hearts, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, when he was wrought wonderfully among them? Did they not let the people go, and they departed? And therefore make a new cart, and take two milch kine, which means mothers who just gave birth to two calves, they're milking cows, on which there hath come no yoke, 
where they, they've never pulled anything, and tie the kind to the cart and bring their calves home from them. Separate them from their babies, tie them to this cart, and take the ark of the Lord and lay it upon the cart and put your jewels of gold, which ye return him for trespass offering, in a coffer by the side thereof and send it away, that it may go and see if it goeth up the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he shall he hath done, done us this great evil. But if not, then ye shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was the chance that happened to us. And so here's what happens. The ark there is for seven months. And they say, listen, get the thing out of here. And so they find their priest. Their religious men say, what should we do? And they say, listen, get rid of the thing and we'll know for sure if that's the problem. But if you get rid of it, make sure that you send it back with an offering. What should we send? And here's how the world, right? The world doesn't understand God. They don't know how to worship God. They don't know the God who is. They say, well, if you're going to worship him, then make two um, images, one of a detestable rodent, of a mouse or a rat, and then one of an unclean part of the human body. That's the offering we want to give to this God to appease him. And the world never does figure out how to really please God. Because you cannot please God outside of knowing his son, Jesus Christ, and having his spirit within you. But they do this, and they're Philistines, and it's the best they can do. And they say this, then take two mother cows who just gave birth, separate them from their babies, which is unnatural, force them away from them. They've never pulled a cart, they've never worked together, tie them together, put the ark in the cart, and then if these two cows by themselves go to Beth Shemesh, they find their way together to Israel, you'll know that it was God. And if not, if they do what would normally happen, which would be they'd go back to their babies, then you know it, just, it was just a chance, it was just an accident, it was a coincidence that happened. Well, we get to verse number 10, and guess what happens? From verses 10 to 16, we find out that the, these mother cows completely neglect their children, and they make a beeline straight to Israel, to Beth Shemesh. And the Philistines see this, verse number 16, and when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And that's the story of the Ark of the Covenant. So let's give you a lesson this morning. And, and help me, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state the obvious, so, so bear with me, but just two thoughts this morning. Here's the first thought, the first lesson we learned from this story. Number one, idols are foolish. You'd agree with that, right? I mean, how foolish to think that Dagon could possibly help the Philistines. Dagon was a joke. He was helpless. He had to be helped. He was on his face. His head was cut off. His hands were laying there. Dagon is a joke. And this idol of the Philistines is certainly foolish. Dagon could never satisfy them. And so you say this morning, Pastor, I mean, that's, you are stating the obvious. Idols are foolish. But what bearing does that have on us? I mean, I mean, we're not a primitive people. We understand that Dagon cannot deliver us or, or meet our needs. He could never satisfy. So I don't get it. We state the obvious, yeah, idolatry is foolish. But what does that have to do with us? Well, let me say something to you this morning. I want you to understand that all of us this morning were created to worship. Innately within every one of us this morning, there is a sense, a need to worship something or someone. And all of us will worship something or someone. 
We were created that way. We were made that way. That's what God has designed within all of us. And listen to me. This morning, we will direct our love, our attention, our adoration, our time, our energy energy to someone or something. I have news for you this morning. When that something or someone is not Jehovah God, it is idolatry. And this morning, I want you to understand, when there are things in our life today 21st century that we say I must have this whether it's good or bad I must have this and I am willing to disobey God to get this we today are practicing idolatry and among God's people this morning we talk about the true God oh great God of heaven but too often in our own hearts and lives there are Dagons in our lives and we don't call them that I don't worship Dagon. I don't worship Molech. I don't go after Astroth. We have different names like rest, comfort, peace, intimacy, affirmation, value, worth, stuff, things, attention, something, or someone. You say, no way, Pastor. We're way too smart for that. Let me remind you of a story in the Old Testament. Who, who was the wisest man in the Bible, Old Testament times? Do you know? Solomon, the wisest. I mean, the queen of Sheba was amazed at his wisdom. He was wise. And when God said, Solomon, I'll give you anything, Solomon says, all I want is wisdom. And God gives it to him. And yet at the end of his life, the wisest man that ever lived is worshiping idols. He bows to the God of sex, wealth, and power. I've got news for you this morning. Nothing has changed When we look at our society today, it is the same thing. We must guard our hearts against idols. You say, Pastor, how do I know if there's idols in my heart? I mean, I don't see that. I don't believe that. I'm not sure that's true. Two questions for you. Number one is this. Ask yourself this morning, what do you love? Well, I hope so. That's a really good answer. But when your mind is free to roam and think about anything you want to think about, what do you love? What do you desire? Sports, hobbies, things, the finer things in life, fitness, health. You see, what we love, we spend our money, our time, our attention, our conversation. I can tell by talking to anybody for a length of time what they really love. Oh man, the Maple Leafs, they're going to win the Stanley Cup this year. It's their year. And we, They were close, man. Seven games, not bad. I'm sure next year is their year. Right, fans? Yeah, no, probably not. Right? But it's, it's, a, it's a good thought. We love them. We're consumed with them. What do we love? And the truth is, for too many believers this morning, we love everything. We're consumed with everything but our great God. It becomes idolatry. What do you love? What do you trust this morning? What do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? Where do you turn in times of despair and loneliness? Some turn to drugs. Some turn to sex. Some turn to pornography. Some turn to shopping and things. Some turn to someone. And they're trusting in that person. I have to caution you about something. This happens in ministry. There are people who have trouble and they say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And I'm good with that. I want to be a help and a counsel and to guide you along. 
But if there ever comes a point where I'm the one you're looking for first for trust and help, you're in the wrong place. Because the arm of flesh will fail you. But we do this. We trust in these things to do what? To bring us comfort, peace, rest, enjoyment, a peace of mind. All God's substitutes and all God additives that, that take place in our life are idolatry. And Calvin had it right when he said the heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And maybe this morning we don't recognize our idols because there are way too many of them in our lives. Here's the problem. The idol, like Dagon, can never help you. Never. I don't care if it's drugs, sex, money, stuff, a person that you're so in love with, that you trust, that you elevate to the place of God. No matter who it is, there might be temporary relief and there might be temporary pleasure, but in the end, all of it will fade. And in the end, it will all fail you. It cannot help you. Listen to what Elizabeth Barrett Browning said. She said, How weak the gods of this world are, and weaker yet their worship made me. And we have Christian people today who the worship of everything other than God has weakened us in our relationship with Him. Idols are stupid. Idols are dumb. Idols are foolish. No-brainer. Number two, second no-brainer. This morning, only Yahweh, God, is worthy of worship. Do you know something? The God of the Bible has always been a monotheist. God has only ever believed in one God. And he should know, because he is the only God. And so idols are foolish because the only God that is true is our God, Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate in the flesh. And he is the only one this morning that is worthy of all worship, all praise, all adoration. He is worthy this morning of our life, our time, our talents, our energy, and everything we possess. Because idols are stupid, idols are dumb, idols do not live. Idols are nothing. He is real. He is alive. He is the God of heaven. You better heed this God. Listen to me. There's not a person on this planet that doesn't know this God exists. Romans chapter 1, we read it this morning in Sunday school. It makes it clear that through creation, mankind is without excuse. You may suppress that. You may deny that. You may lie to yourself. But the truth of the matter is this. Every human being, as they look around, knows that there must be something out there bigger than themselves. Not only that, we know this from Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that in every one of us, there is a fear of death our entire life. I hear people say dumb things sometimes, and they try to be nice and kind. They say at a funeral, oh, death is just natural. Can I tell you something? Death is the most unnatural thing in this world. Why do you think we fight against it? It was not part of God's original plan or creation. Sin brought in death. You better take heed to this God. You know he exists. You know you will, you will die. And Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, he has put eternity into our hearts. And we know that we're going to leave this planet, and when we do, we will spend an eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only God that is worthy of worship because He is alive and well. And not only that, in His love and in His mercy, He has reached out to rebellious men and women and said, listen, you are sinful, you are wicked, you are unholy, you've established idols in your life, you've turned your back from me, but in my love and in my mercy... I'll wrap myself in flesh. 
of a perfect life. I will sacrifice on the cross, and I will give you a great exchange, your sinfulness for my righteousness. Jehovah God is the only one that's worthy of worship. You should take heed to him, and you should understand he is not helpless. The God we serve is not like Dagon, right? Acts chapter 17 tells us this God that we serve is the maker of heaven and earth, and he needs nothing from us. The God of heaven this morning does not need you. He does not need me. He doesn't need anyone. The God of heaven is not wringing his hands this morning and hoping somehow, some way, his plans will come to fruition. He's not worried about it. He's not sweating it. He needs no one. He needs nothing. He doesn't need us to cheer him on. He doesn't need us to take him home. He's got it covered. The God we serve this morning is a God who is self-sufficient. He needs no one, not you or anyone else. Here are the lessons that are no-brainers. Idols are foolish. And whether it's Dagon or comfort or acceptance or finding your worth, it's foolish. It's not real. It will not last. Lesson two, obviously, only God is worthy of our worship. Now let me share something with you that may not be so obvious this morning after talking about this God of the Bible and the God that we've sung about today. I hope you understand and you see the glory of the God that we know. When you look around and when we talk about what he has done, this God who needs no one, no one, is a God who, although he doesn't need us, he wants us. Listen to the words of Christ in, in John chapter 4. He, he says this, he said, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then he makes this amazing statement. And the Father seeketh such to worship him. Can I tell you an amazing fact this morning? We would agree that idols are stupid. And we all get caught up in this idolatry of putting something in God's place, of wanting something so much I'm willing to disobey God to have it. We all do it. I don't care who you are, we all do it. We must break those idols. We must bring them down to crush them. Take their heads off. Take their hands off. We must bow before the only God of heaven. All of us. We do this daily. Because he's worthy. And the greatest thing about this God that we serve is this. Although he needs no one. No one. Some people say, well, God created the world because he was lonely. And he was so lonely that he had to create men and women so he could love them and they could love him. Wrong. God was good without us. He had perfect fellowship in the triunity of his being. He didn't need us. That's not true. It sounds good maybe in a message, and maybe it pulls on someone's heart, but the fact is, God does not need anyone. He's okay. And this God says to you and to me, I don't need you, but I want you. I want you to fellowship with me. I want you to worship me. I want you to love me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to know me. The unknowable God says, I want you to know me. I will be your God. And you will be my people. Paul Tripp said this, no matter what plans you have for you, God's plans are far better. And no matter what desires grip your heart, God's will is infinitely better. 
And so this morning, as we conclude, let me just say this. It would be good for all of us this morning to search our own hearts and find our own idols, what you love, what you really love, what you really trust, and to say, God, by your grace, I need to break these things down and understand that these desires that I have pale in comparison with what you have for me. And when I say things like, God is more concerned about your comfort or your character than your comfort and your holiness than your happiness, I'm not saying that the Christian has a miserable life. That's not at all. A Christian has a life that's so much deeper than just happenings around them and having stuff. It's the joy and peace that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ that is not fleeting. It's eternal. And so this morning, let me encourage you. You examine your heart and life. What are the idols in your life that need to be cast down? See God for who he is. He is the God of heaven and earth. He doesn't need someone to pick him up off his face. He doesn't need someone to cheer him on for a victory. He doesn't need someone to carry him home back to where he's to be worshipped. He doesn't need any of that. This is the God we serve. And understand this morning, this very God is the one who loved you so much that in the person of Jesus Christ, he walked this planet, he experienced our difficulties, he took our sin, died, was buried, and rose again so that we might have life and life abundantly. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.